Welcome to the latest episode of the Informing Choices Minipod. Grand challenges are more than ordinary research questions or priorities. They are end results or outcomes at a global in scale, very difficult to accomplish, yet offer hope of ultimately paving the way to a successful future for humanity. Many people will point to the COVID-19 pandemic as the point at which society chooses between restoring the old order and nav navigating to a new landscape. So what challenges do we see ahead of us? To discuss five future grand challenges, I'm delighted to welcome back global futurist, international keynote speaker, and the CEO of Fast Future, Rohit Talwar, to the podcast. Rohit, welcome back. Remind us about your focus and your business. Hi, Steve. Well, thank you for having me back. And uh, yeah, so as a global futurist, we work with clients around the world to try and help them anticipate those forces, shifts and changes that could shape the future to imagine the kind of scenarios that could play out as those forces interact. And then think about what we need today to do today in order to prepare for a range of future possible outcomes. And right now, uh, there's, as you say, very heightened interest in identifying a broader range of grand challenges, mm. both in terms of opportunities, but also risks to say, how do we make sure we're better prepared for and acting on these things that are shaping the future? Fascinating. Now, I kind of laid out one perspective, one definition, if you like, of grand challenges. But how do you define grand challenges? What do you see as the characteristics of what we're calling a grand challenge? Well, I think you encapsulated it really well. But if I was to just elaborate on that a little bit, I think the nature of grand challenges is that they are truly global. They impact the whole of society. They present both an opportunity and a risk. So we could mm. see things like poverty, social inclusion, race and gender equality as being big social grand challenges. And then beyond that, things like education. How do we harness AI for good? How do we build the infrastructure we need for tomorrow? And how do we do all of this in an environmentally sustainable manner? All of those would be considered grand challenges. You could throw in things like transnational crime, terrorism, environmental protection. There are a whole range of them now that are adding to that list of things that we need to work on collectively as a planet and for the planet in order to provide a positive legacy to future generations. So, so having laid out there a number of interconnected challenges, I suppose. And, and that's one of the things I find really interesting when we think about these is the interconnected nature uh, of the challenges. But then it's an interconnected world. It's an interconnected society, isn't it? So at the risk of trying to simplify that list down, what are your five top grand challenges that you see us facing over the next five to 10 years? What are the really critical ones you see? Yeah, I think I'm going to present five of my list of 17 top five. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to pick a few that I think uh, if, if, we, if we made progress on these, we'd be doing a pretty good job. Yeah. Uh, the first for me is about the planet itself. That We can't talk about the long-term future 
unless we have a really solid sense that we're protecting uh, the infrastructure on which we're planning, and that's the climate and the environment. So the grand challenges here are around making sure that we're really taking the reduction of emissions quite seriously. We have the Paris climate change targets, and, and people are talking about getting to those targets by 2050, zero emissions by 2050. I think we have to own up to the fact that the planet won't wait. We're seeing more and more corporates saying we'll get there by 2030 and we're not going to fiddle the books by doing that with carbon offsets, i.e. paying some money to buy someone else's carbon, you know, emissions that they're not doing. Yeah. And we'll keep emitting. I think we're going to get people moving towards genuinely net zero. And you've got cities like Glasgow and Copenhagen, countries like Norway really accelerating that commitment. The UK has now made that commitment and it's going to be fascinating to see what enshrining that in law does and how we have a combination of regulation and innovation to get us there. Yeah. Alongside this then is the environmental side and that's about making sure that we're sustaining biodiversity, increasing the range of crops we eat from. I think 80% of our food comes from nine crops. It's about managing land use systems. It's about what we put into the soil, what we put into the ocean, what we put into the atmosphere. Really trying to manage all of that, not from a what can we get away with, but what would actually be beneficial and how do we mitigate the damaging impacts of what we're doing. Uh, so climate, environment, sustainability are massive Key to that, obviously, are the things that are, if you like, big emitters. Transport, manufacturing, energy. Uh, funny enough, aviation isn't one of the biggest ones, but we yeah, probably sure. in it. Uh, and so, the, you know, you have to throw into that, really rethinking the energy mix. More and more renewables, more and more focus on radical new energies, uh, energy solutions, so we can have wireless transmission we can do more generation at the point of demand. So capturing the heat from your body and the energy from your body and using it to power your devices, capturing the motion of people moving around homes and towns and using that to power the systems in our homes and the lighting in our, our streets, capturing the energy from our waste and the heat and anything else we emit in our homes and, and recycling that into energy. So it's it's about a radical innovation in energy, reducing our reliance on the transmission infrastructure uh, and really moving to a much more abundant model where it's clean, it's green and it's almost free. Those all go together with that, you know, climate and energy footprint. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting the way that you're talking there immediately will pop what pops into my, my mind is enabling society to get to those green targets. Absolutely. And, and we know it's doable from any one of 30 different energy technologies. So if we were to just stick solar panels on the roof of every building, I think it's something like 90% of the countries around the world will be self-sufficient. <laughs> and a lot would be generating so much energy that you could store it and you know, yeah. pass it to neighbouring countries, distrib distribute it. If you live in Iceland, you, you might be struggling a bit, but you know, there's not many countries where you couldn't. So I think we have to go beyond now the conversation about 
what should we do to how can we make this happen now? How can we accelerate the mix and allow for the fact that we might have different solutions in different places? So if I'm in Iceland, I might use a lot more geothermal power. If I'm somewhere else, I might use more solar. Frankly, it doesn't matter so long as we wean ourselves off fossil fuels uh, and we dramatically reduce uh, the cost of generation and the, the damaging impacts on the environment. Yeah, cool. Number two. So I think number two is about the economic infrastructure. We live in such a fragile world right now. We're looking at three possible scenarios of the one end, the Great Depression, slight warning signals coming through what's going on in the US. Are we, are we tanking into what could be the mother of all depressions? At the other end of the spectrum, we have people talking about the roaring 20s. Could it be like the 1920s post-World War I where everything exploded, innovation, ideas, new businesses, massive growth of money, funny enough, it then was followed by the Great Depression. And, and the third scenario is the one that sort of seems to be in the middle, which is the K-shaped recovery, where some people are on the upward leg of the K into that roaring 20s scenario, some are in the downward leg of the K, basically into their own personal depression. And a lot of people think we're there now. So, but we know it's all unsustainable. We know that the, the underlying fabric of this is unsustainable. You just look at the numbers. Somewhere around $300 trillion of global debt, mm -hmm. which is about three and a half times the size of the global economy. Estimates of somewhere between $500 trillion and a quadrillion dollars of derivatives contracts. Now, the fact that we don't even know how many there are or what the value is, is scary enough. Uh, but these are things that don't aid stability in economies. It doesn't matter whether you're, you know, whether you're making money from them or not, but there is very you, well, there are very few people who would argue that these things enhance economic stability and facilitate long-term planning. We've been there before, haven't we? Uh, about three or 400 times. <laughs> but, we have and and so we need to start finding better economic models that reduce that reduce our reliance on debt uh, that allow nations to plan differently that also allow people to participate in the economy more and, that, more and that's why there's so much excitement about cryptocurrencies and i know we talked a lot about this last time yeah but it's simple things like allowing an individual with five dollars or five pounds to be able to buy a fraction of a share in amazon it's allowing them to have a say in the companies that they buy from because their share or the token effectively gives them a voting right. It, it's about taking away the volatility that comes from fiat currencies where countries can just print unlimited amounts of their own currency and effectively deflate the value of the currency and, and drive inflation into the economy. And the US now is kind of going to break all records on that understandably so because of the neglect of many things for so long. And that's why people are saying, well, actually, can we move to digital currencies where there's a, a fixed quantity? So they're deflationary in a sense that you yeah. can't print anymore and they can become a store of value, they can become a medium of exchange. But can we start to do some of these things that just create more stability and create globally tradable currencies? Now, whether it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin or whatever, creating something that, that is universally accepted 
and right now also doesn't have the kind of weaknesses we see in the system where someone like Elon Musk can with one tweet wipe off $300 billion of the value of cryptocurrency, but also wipe off 10% of the value of his own company. uh, That's that's not a good model. Um, You you need more viable economic models. We need to do the thinking, whether it's modern monetary theory, whether it's debt-free economies and reducing the role of fractional reserve banking, or whatever it happens to be, it's starting to find different models and experimenting to a more sustainable footing for the future. And that might also include new economic models for how you support fragile economies. So in the past, we've had this model where we all scratch our heads, we worry about what we're gonna do about, and pick a name of the country, Yemen, Sudan, Liberia, where you know wherever it happens to be in the world uh, and then the donors come in world bank international bank for reconstruction and development imf donor nations and the money is sort of poured in but it doesn't have the impact we would ever hope it to so we might need some very different models we might need to move in a sense backwards to go forwards to to adopt the model from colonial era of in effect, a big brother or big big sister nation who's mentoring you, but who's mentoring you in everything. So India, for example, might become the mentor to Bangladesh. Yeah. And everything is done with an Indian partner from you know, Indian government, Indian NGOs or whatever. So there's a consistency in the approach and there's joined up thinking Sweden might take on Liberia, Ireland might take on Yemen or whatever but it's a country that can work with them in a consistent way and lay out a, a 20 to 50 year development agenda uh, and really help them navigate their way through that, uh, which is good for both sides. So you don't have multiple players coming in and out. You don't have uh, lots of agencies all trying to compete with each other. You don't have a lot of professional services firms that are very well intentioned, but end up taking a lot of rent out of the system. And not having the impact so this is all about building up local capacity it's about building sustainable infrastructures and maybe even having countries make very mature decisions to say look there are six of us in neighboring countries where we don't have enough people to do everything well you know education infrastructure policing energy so why don't we merge at some level so we only have one energy ministry, one economic authority, one educational authority. We might still keep our unique local languages and culture, but we have one model. So it's kind of a model like a bit like the EU in some respects that allows us to be more efficient. We're not making tough choices about whether this incredibly talented woman becomes head of the national energy company head of the National Energy Authority, head of the Energy Ministry, Treasury Secretary or Minister of Finance. We can use her talents in one place, but we've got equally talented people to do the others. We're not restricted. And then we have less of a brain drain overseas because a lot of these countries have an incredibly well-educated elite, if you like, but they lead. And that, that, that's... that's that's a really interesting point, Adam, because I think a brain drain is something that's uh, that's applicable not just to some of those so-called developing countries, but we've even seen the same thing in a number of European countries, from Greece, from Romania, and so on. 
So um, uh, that's a that's a, a fascinating fascinating idea to uh, to kind of pool the expertise. That's one and two, sustainability and the economy. And I've already noticed some overlaps in that one of the things you spoke about in terms of economy was sustainability. And of course, talking about sustainability, you spoke about the the kind of the costs and the investment required to help us mitigate against the impact of, of climate change and protect the environment. So where do we go for number three? So it's interesting, as you say, there's already trillions of dollars just tied up in the first two options I talked about. <laughs> and you need an enabling infrastructure. So throwing another, you know, 40 to 50 trillion dollars of roads, airports, ports, all of those kinds of things, sewage systems. So we're really reliant on science and technology to get us there in smarter, cleaner, lower cost manner, in a smarter, cleaner, lower cost manner. And so we've got to do a few things there around harnessing the exponential science and technology developments and the glue that will hold them all together, which I believe is artificial intelligence. So we, on the one hand, we have to really be pushing for progress in these areas. Uh, and I think uh, artificial intelligence, advances in genetics and synthetic biology so we can start to engineer molecules that absorb carbon from the environment that enable us to create new building materials and then on the material science front to be able to manufacture down at the atomic level so we can do true nanotechnology manufacture atomically precise structures which might be lower weight higher strength lower energy requirements we could truly create that kind of world of abundance that we see in star trek science and technology will get us there it will also get us to potentially breaking any of our understandable limits on aging, enhance our brains and bodies in unimaginable ways, change a huge amount of what we do. On the one hand, that's incredibly positive. On the other hand, there's huge issues for society about how do we control this, who gets the benefits of the investment, who gets to decide who can have access to it and what price they have access. So there's a lot of very interesting issues that come out of these major developments. And so how we, how we drive it forward, but also do it within a controlled and ethical framework with good governance, particularly when the size of the prize is so large and nations are competing on economic dominance of AI, quantum computing, the crypto economy, China's launching its digital yuan. The US has put a cryptocurrency specialist from MIT in charge of the Securities and Exchange Commission. So we kind of know what's going on. The question is how we do this and, and, and can nations set aside the competitive aspect of this enough to create ethical frameworks that make sure we harness this for the, in service of humanity and this being this explosion of innovation in science and technology. It could create true abundance. It could transform every aspect of what goes on in, in, in our world. It could enable us to deliver on the sustainable development goals. It, it could get us very close to that kind of abundant economy you see in Star Trek where there's no money. But it needs a level of trust, compassion, connectivity, and a desire to pay it forward to future generations 
that we're maybe not seeing enough of right now. There's a bit too much competition and friction. If we maintain that, then, then we won't harness that science and technology for the benefit of, of all. So the grand challenge there is both in terms of developing, pushing it forward, but also putting a governance framework around it so it serves the whole of humanity. The, the, the thought that immediately popped into my head there about um, uh, global access and if you like democratizing access to these kind of technologies is that the current examples about vaccinating the world so that we realize that the whole of the population of the world needs to be safe before anyone is safe would suggest that there's a way to go to um, to create that sense of uh, a global cooperation. But uh, um, I, I hear what you say. Well, that, and that's a really interesting one. So, so uh, on the surface, it would be a very obvious answer to go, let's make sure we're making enough vaccines to, to vaccinate everyone on the planet, and then to do a second vaccine and a third of whatever. But the, the picture is much more complicated because one of the countries that's got the worst record on vaccinations, on infections and deaths right now is India. And it just so happens that India is the biggest manufacturer of vaccines. Uh, if you look at like somewhere like Laos, I think there's almost no one in Laos been vaccinated, but it's only had one, one case <laughs> in the whole time. Yeah. Uh, and, and so you're seeing these very odd stories of, uh, well, this very odd picture emerging. It's not just about rich Western nations, if you like, giving the money. It's about the politics of local countries, yeah. uh, infection risk everywhere. Right now, you know, we're hugely at risk from the level of infections in India. And OK, we're all focused on the Indian variant, but how long before we see the, you know, the Greek variant or the, the Peruvian variant? We're not even sure why these variants come up in the places they do. Why did Kent have its own unique variant? Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating as well. And I think that's a, that's a really interesting example of where the current economic or, or the current business model makes it harder to provide a more democratized access to the very technology, the vaccine technology that would help resolve that issue. We, we could probably spend all the rest of the day talking about that, but we've looked at sustainability, economy, science and technology. So for me, number four is, is again, one of those kind of infrastructural challenges. And the infrastructure I'm talking about here is around governance, trust and ethics. They're in short supply at the moment. I think that we're seeing a lack of governance in all sorts of ways, whether it's governments we don't trust and the, 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 the emergency laws they push through to be able to make decisions during the pandemic through to cronyism, through to feeling that there's a lack of transparency, abuse of human rights, all of those things are going on. And there's this feeling that we've got a bit of a governance deficit. Uh, we've also got some hard man led nations where they're playing fast and loose with democracy. You've got this sense of a gradual decline in trust in society, which is one of the reasons why I think things like blockchain has become so interesting because it's immutable. You can't change the transactions and therefore you develop immense trust in it because it's a trustless model. Mm. You don't have to trust anyone because it's all embedded in unchangeable uh, transactions. 
So it, it's the ultimate in trustworthiness because it's designed in a trustless basis. So we, you know, um, we need some new models for that. And then we're distinctly lacking in the global ethic, you know, big picture about who, who do we leave behind? Who do we make these choices to leave behind, whether it's from a healthcare basis or from a community, which communities are allowed to be just ignored, take what's happened to the Rohingyas. When we have technologies like artificial intelligence and the decision-making of autonomous devices, what are the ethics that are going to sit behind the decision as to what happens if you're about to have an accident and who gets hit? All those kinds of things. You know, do you take out the 80-year-old? But then it turns out the 80-year-old could be eminent uh, physicist in your country or a great religious leader or could be someone who's been you know, receiving government benefits for 60 years. And you know, how are you going to decide what the basis is on which, you know, whether that person is taken out versus the 21 year old who's coming across the you know, road the other way. Uh, and, and just how we treat each other, how we behave towards each other. These are, these are difficult things to play with, but we need to start to, to move to a different model where there's a, I think, where we see a greater level of connectivity, trust, a sense of community, a sense of providing a legacy for the future. Uh, and I have terms like leveling up and building back better, but the sentiment is right, we, if we care. Otherwise, we have to kind of be honest and say, actually, we're talking about a planet of or an inner core of you know, one to three billion who we want to be on the arc. And we're just going to kind of gradually degrade it, the provision for everyone else and just accept it. That's really unpalatable, but in a sense, we're already doing that in certain places. Hmm. And, and that's very difficult. Uh, so right now, when we're recording this, there's, there's all sorts of horrors going on between Israel and Palestine but no amount of global hang wringing and uh, admonishing is going to change the fact that there are some very tough alliances there and, and what's ethically right in terms of getting in there intervening and stopping both sides is kind of overridden by long-standing political economic cultural and religious factors uh, which get in the way of doing what would morally be seen to be right which is to just have both sides sit back and go no this is just wrong we can't keep killing civilians uh and wrecking you know areas and this is both sides i'm i'm not taking sides here but you know it's just wrong just by continuously carrying it on as a kind of ballistic argument it has to become something that is about finding an ethical framework and building trust and within that then coming up with long-term solutions Although that's a very specific example, one of the things that strikes me is that's a it's a really interesting description of what seems to be happening between nations right across the world at the moment, because without the overt military intervention, you kind of get the same feeling of mistrust that's growing between the West and Russia, between the West and China and, and the other areas around the world. So it, you know, it, it, that's, that's a really good indicator of how potentially dangerous this mistrust is, isn't it? It is, and, and, and we mustn't also lose sight of the fact that in any kind of conflict or, or, or moment of stress or strife or disruption, 
there are people who stand to make an awful lot of money out of it. Yeah. So if you look at uh, just a very simple example, that recent ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal, you would not believe the number of lawyers, consultants, financiers, people who've got involved there. So the lawyers fighting the case on behalf of all the people whose goods got stuck in port, uh, the risk assessors working out whether you really did have you know, 50,000 cabbages on that ship and how many of them truly, you know, were inedible by the time they got to port. You've got the financiers now coming in and saying, well, look, we'll take a stake in your case. We'll back your legal case, but in return, we'll get 30% of whatever you get back or whatever. So you start, you know, there's an ecosystem emerged around this. And it's, it's one where, in a sense, the there is no common interest there. There's no clear ethic and trust-based model that says how you resolve this. Because, you know, what seems right for the people whose goods were trapped there and their customers who are suing them seems, you know, is completely opposed to the insurers of the people who are going to have to pay out on behalf of the port or on behalf of the ship owner that got stuck. And are they going to blame the pilot in the canal? So it's it's an incredibly complex model. And we have no overriding sort of trust structure or ethical structure to deal with it. And the same will be true when we start doing genetic enhancement, when we start rearing babies outside the womb, when men start having pregnancies, when people start to enhance their kids brains and bodies so they can do better at school get better job prospects without any kind of guiding framework we're going to be in real trouble fascinating i think each one each one of these probably needs a needs a podcast on its own and fifth and finally where are we going now so hopefully it's become abundantly clear that in order to deal with any of the others we need an informed and educated uh, society with the capacity for seeing the big picture as well as the the local issue and taking multiple perspectives on it solving problems hearing other people's views hearing all sides of the story i don't see that in evidence much in many places other than maybe you know with a few friends over a drink in the evening and so I think with all of this, the world is changing so fast, the issues are becoming so big, the grand challenge is so all-encompassing that we need to raise education uh, standards and to be able to, to push back at authorities way through from nursery through to lifelong, life-wide adult education. We need those mechanisms that are expanding people's understanding of changing world expanding their capacity to keep navigating their world that world on behalf of themselves and their family so they can keep securing an income and giving them the capacity to take part in informed debate to exercise their right to vote if they're in a, in a democratic nation to, to make a meaningful their voice heard in the debate uh, in order to get the kind of representative change that they want and what's fascinating to me is the most powerful example i've seen of change happening recently is a relatively trivial one from european football where a group of clubs decided to pull away from everyone else create this super league 
which would affect up money out of everyone else because those Super League teams would earn so much money and it would make a mockery of all sorts of competitions. And what was interesting is the fans of those teams objected. On the one hand, they took a very informed and educated approach, which is leading to some policy changes for those clubs in terms of how they engage supporters. But the stuff that actually had more impact was the very direct action of protesting outside the club, threatening not to renew season tickets, invading the club in the case of Manchester United. Uh, but that had much more of an impact and the clubs walked away really quickly. I think all of the six UK clubs that were involved walked away within 48 hours from, from the deal. And, and so you, that, that's an interesting one because on the one hand, the educated bit is getting the supporters' trusts involved and trying to get clubs to listen more to the supporters in an informed way. But the stuff that actually forced their hand was the less educated, more <laughs> gut feel, emotional protests and, and the threat to their wallets. But we don't that want that to be the model going forward. We don't want that to be violent direct action to be the way we affect change. We want it to be through informed and educated debate. But right now we're in a world where that, that more aggressive action seems to win. So we... We have a challenge as well because evidence tends to suggest to us that that's the way to do it. And you contrast that we're in the same industry. We've been battling this issue of racism for as long as there have been you know, non-white players in the game here in the UK and around the world. And we've made relatively small, small amounts of progress. We're, we're in this interesting situation where the informed, the intelligent, the, the educated approach isn't having the desired impact but we know that that has to be the right way forward because the, the more conflict-based approach just can't be right going forward so we have to find a way of kind of getting ourselves to a higher level of, of understanding here. i don't know how clear i'm being but I, I think education is at the core of everything whether it's learning how to cope with ai how to manage our environment better or how to deal with conflict the problem is we're seeing that that the more direct action approaches seem to have more impact right now. I think you were being very articulate there. And I, and I think that's a really interesting example of, of kind of the education and the, and the positive action. And the, the, when, I, when I think about that, you know, when I reflect back on what you've said, whether it's response around sustainability and protecting the environment and mitigating it against climate change, whether it's the worst outcomes of the way that the economy has been traditionally managed, whether it's fear or otherwise about the unknown in terms of how science and technology evolves, whether it's how governments are responding and acting, under a series of different circumstances, that education feels like it's the piece that actually helps us move on from the status quo. Because I think everything that you've spoken about this afternoon is about changing the social, uh, the status quo, so that the social future, the future for humanity, is a much better place in years to come, rather than perhaps what we've come to accept as normal today.
Rohit, that's been absolutely fantastic. We're well over time, but actually, I think there was some really, really crucially important stuff that uh, that we spoke about there. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted that you've been able to come on and, and share your thoughts. Just remind us, how can people contact you to learn more about what you do, learn more about Fast Future? Yeah, you can find out about the company and the books that we publish at fastfuture.com. And you'll find me on all the usual channels, Facebook, LinkedIn, etc. And uh, you can contact me directly, rohit at fastfuture.com. Rohit, thank you ever so much for your time today. And thank you everyone for listening. Do let your friends and colleagues know about the Informing Choices mini pod. And I'll see you on a future episode very soon.